The story of the electric chair is complicated, improbable, and obscure. Very few Americans know that a dentist spearheaded the drive to make electrocution of condemned criminals the law in New York, and the two titans of the late 19th century industry battled fiercely over the electrical system that was to be used. William Kemmler, the first man to be executed in the electric chair, has passed quietly into history, as has his crime for which he was condemned. To most, the electric chair is merely a fact of life, a means to an end, only notable to the extent which it enters into one's opinion on capital punishment. But its entrance into American justice and culture was notable indeed. Intrigue, treachery, murder, politics, progress, fame. The story of the electric chair has it all. Over its history, America's attitudes towards execution have evolved. From colonial times into the nation's early youth, its punishments were harsh. Those found guilty of more severe crimes were executed publicly, usually by hanging, though burning, beheading, and pressing were not unknown. Other criminals faced such unpleasantness as branding, whipping, or nostril slitting. Even those convicted of minor crimes found their sentences both physically painful and publicly humiliating. For missing church, one might find oneself confined in the stocks in the center of town for a few days. A woman who nagged her husband might have her tongue pierced with a piece of iron or be forced to wear the branks, a metalhead cage which featured a bit to prevent speech. To modern sensibilities, this type of justice seems almost unimaginably brutal. As America aged and grew, its courts adjust sentences, keeping up with the general sense of enlightenment that swept the country. Minor crimes came to be punished more often with confinement than with humiliation. Military courts adopted the firing squad for their death sentences, and the most savage forms of execution were used less frequently. In the early 19th century, they were replaced with hanging, and over time, the hangings came to occur behind the walls of prisons or jails more often than in the town square. Most people no longer had the stomach for public executions. The general opinion was that justice could be served without bloodthirstiness, and while executions were necessary, they should be carried out as quietly and humanely as possible. Hanging seemed to meet these requirements. Hanging, though, had its problems. The hangman's dilemma was one of physics, how to figure the proper distance for the condemned to drop before the rope pulled tautly and dispatched them. Too short a drop wouldn't generate enough force to break the victim's neck, leaving him to strangle slowly, sometimes for as long as 20 minutes. Too long a drop would generate too much force, which resulted sometimes in unintentional beheadings. The variables in the equation were many, the type of rope, the type of knot, the placement of the knot, and the weight of the condemned all figured in, and it was all too easy to miscalculate and get cruel or gory results. Late 19th century Americans felt strongly that they were living in a modern age. Surely, with all the new wonders of technology, there had to be a quick, humane method to carry out the state's responsibility of executing criminals. Although most people associate electricity with Thomas Edison and the late 19th century, it was harnessed and put to use much earlier by several scientists in various countries. The Leyden jar, a device for storing and discharging static electricity, was invented in 1745. The amount of charge stored in the Leyden jar was enough to kill small animals such as birds, fish, and mice and its demonstrators did just that to show its capabilities. In 1786, 
Luigi Galvani posited that electricity was the essence of life. He and others ran charges through dead animals and eventually corpses, reanimating them in frightening ways. What these predecessors of Edison could not do was manipulate electricity in any way that was meaningful to common people. Although Zenobe Theophile Graham had proven in 1873 that electricity could be transmitted from place to place via overhead conductors, the production and control of the voltages necessary to serve society remained theoretical until Edison worked them out. His incandescent light bulb was a practical, universal use to which the science of electricity could be put. His power plants and distribution systems bridged the gap between the scientists in their labs and the common man in his home. Edison built his first power plant in 1879. Almost immediately, representatives from cities around the country were clamoring for contracts to have their cities wired for the new marvel. City after city was illuminated, all using Edison's system, which ran on direct current. Direct current was not without its problems, though. In DC systems, the electricity always flowed in one direction. An extra piece of equipment, the communicator, was necessary to ensure that the flow always went in the proper direction. Hence, DC systems were complicated. Another problem was that the voltages in a DC system dropped off sharply after a relatively short distance. Many power plants would have to be built to supply reliable power to even a medium-sized city. There was an alternative. Nikola Tesla, a bizarre Croatian genius, recognized the problems inherent in DC systems and envisioned a system that ran on alternating current. In AC systems, the electricity changes direction many times a second, creating a magnetic field that allows for the transport of huge voltages without loss along the way. These voltages are then stepped down through transformers to a level that's safe for use by the public. A few cities were wired with early AC systems, not of Tesla's design. Though these were inferior to the systems Tesla imagined, they piqued the interest of a few investors. One of these was George Westinghouse, who had made his first fortune with the invention of the railroad air brake. Westinghouse intended to make alternating current profitable. But for the time being, Edison's direct current was by far the most popular technology. Tesla was employed by Edison for less than a year. During this time, he told Edison of his theories. Edison dismissed them, and Tesla left his employee in frustration. In 1887, he finally secured patents for his system and, more importantly, financial backing. He was now able to demonstrate the theories he had carried in his head for years. Westinghouse took notice. In 1888, he bought 40 patents from Tesla, and within a few years, over 100 cities and towns were wired for Westinghouse AC power. Edison was losing business and employees to Westinghouse, and he was angry. In Buffalo, New York, a dentist named Alfred Southwick kept abreast of the latest developments concerning electricity. As a medical man, he thought electricity could be useful to him in his practice, perhaps as an anesthetic. When a Buffalo man stumbled into a generator at the city's power plant and was electrocuted, Southwick got an idea. Death from exposure to electricity, he thought, was an instantaneous, painless way to die. It could be adopted by the state as a replacement for hanging. At the same time, Dr. George Fell, also of Buffalo, was coming to the same conclusions. After having shared their ideas with each other at a meeting of a Buffalo Scientific Society, Dr. Fells and Southwick went to Colonel Rockwell, 
the head of the Buffalo Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Electrocution, they told Rockwell, was a far more efficient and humane method of disposing of unwanted animals than drowning, which was the method then most often employed. Rockwell agreed. In 1882, Southwick and Fell began a long series of experiments on buffalo's surplus animals, publishing their findings in scientific papers as they progressed. Southwick had an influential friend in the New York state government, Senator Daniel McMillan. When Southwick showed McMillan the results of his experiments, McMillan was struck by how useful electrocution would be against those who wanted to abolish the death penalty. The main benefit of electrocution was, Southwick claimed, its quick and painless nature. If abolitionists could no longer claim that capital punishment was cruel and painful, then their arguments against it would carry no weight. Macmillan, a strong proponent of capital punishment, took Southwick's ideas to Governor David Bennett Hill. Hill was convinced. In his 1885 State of the State message, he charged the New York legislature with finding a means for taking the life of such as are condemned to die in a less barbarous manner. The legislator did not address Hill's concerns in 1885. In 1886, he took a different tack, appointing a commission to investigate and report the most humane and practical method of carrying into effect the sentence of death in capital cases. Appointed to the committee were Alfred Southwick, Matthew Hale, and Elbridge Jerry. The conclusion arrived at their 95-page report was this, that of all the types of execution that could possibly replace hanging, electrocution was the best option. The report, submitted in January of 1886, recommended that New York should adopt electrocution as a replacement for hanging. A proposed bill for the amendment of the Criminal Procedure Code was included. It was introduced in the legislature almost immediately. Public reaction to the bill was mixed, and by spring it seemed doomed, having suffered several amendments that left it a shell of its former self. But on May 8th, the final day of the legislative session, Senator Henry Cogleshell maneuvered the bill back into its original form and got it passed with a voice vote. Such political gymnastics were uncommon, but raised few eyebrows in an era known for greed and graft. Governor Hill signed the bill on June 5th, and it was set to become law on January 1st, 1889. From that point forward, condemned criminals in New York would be electrocuted instead of hanged. What remained to be decided, though, was which system, AC or DC, would be used in the New York death chamber. It was becoming evident that alternating current would eclipse direct current for providing power to towns and cities within a few years. Evident to everyone, that is, except Thomas Edison. In the face of irrefutable proof to the contrary, Edison clung to his belief that direct current systems were better and safer and would eventually dominate the market. In 1887, he began trying to discredit Westinghouse and his AC systems. He asked his staff to collect reports regarding deaths involving alternating current. He hired lobbyists in several states in an attempt to limit the voltages that power lines could legally carry. And most importantly, he made it known that he wanted New York's electric chair to use alternating current. On June 5, 1888, the New York Evening Post published a letter from Harold Brown. The letter was a warning about the dangers inherent in AC power. The New York Board of Electrical Control, Brown said, should ban AC systems before there is a tragic loss of life. Though Brown did not mention it in his letter, he had been an employee of Thomas Edison in the 1870s. There was no absolute proof, 
but it appears now that Brown was acting as Edison's agent in the fight to brand AC power as dangerous. If this is indeed true, then Brown was well chosen for the task. He was fervent and dramatic, and he attracted a lot of attention. Brown staged a series of experiments on July 30, 1888, and invited members of the Electrical Board of Control and various press representatives. Before those gathered, he systematically applied different levels of current from AC and DC systems to several stray dogs, demonstrating, supposedly, the lethal nature of alternating current. He repeated his experiments several days later, then continued them at Edison's laboratory in New Jersey. Edison himself offered a bounty of 25 cents per animal brought in and surrendered for the experiments. Finally, the experiments were brought to an end after Brown staged another public spectacle during which he electrocuted, using alternating current, two calves and a horse. The New York Medico-Legal Society paid close attention to Brown's experiments. They had been charged by the Department of Prisons with working out the details of the new electrocution system. As none of the members had any experience with electricity, Brown's arguments carried a lot of weight. When the Medico-Legal Society submitted a report in December 1888, it was stipulated that the new device should use alternating current. Meanwhile, George Westinghouse was taking the high road. He and his representatives argued vehemently against Brown's conclusions, saying that electrocution was more a matter of amperage than voltage. They claimed from the start that Brown was merely an instrument of Edison, that he was trying to discredit a system that was, at that moment, eclipsing Edison's in popularity across the country. For his part, Brown claimed that he was not an employee of Edison and was merely concerned about public safety. He challenged Westinghouse to a sort of electrical duel, asking him to receive a certain amount of voltage via alternating current, while he himself received the same amount via direct current. Westinghouse never deigned to comment on the challenge, and Brown claimed that Westinghouse was afraid. As the public relations battle raged, the execution bill became law. The first human subject in the new death apparatus would be the first New Yorker convicted of murder in 1889. And the man to design that apparatus was Harold Brown. The New York Board of Prisons, deeming him an expert, appointed him New York's official electric chair technician. William Kemmler was an illiterate alcoholic vegetable peddler in Buffalo. Considering the squalor of the Buffalo slum in which he lived, he was successful. He owned his business, which employed several neighborhood men and boys. Kemmler, though, did not aspire to finer things. His passion was drink, and he preferred to drink in the roughest bars in Buffalo. Kemmler was also a jealous man. His common-law wife, Tilly Ziegler, had left her first husband in Philadelphia to accompany Kemmler to Buffalo. Now he feared that she would leave him and return to Philadelphia. They argued constantly, and Kemmler tried to extinguish his anger with constant drinking. On the morning of March 29, 1889, William Kemmler was drinking beer, trying to soothe the hangover brought on by a furious night of drinking. John DeBello, one of his employees, had come to fetch him for work, and Tilly spoke pleasantly to him, asking him to get some things for her from the market. Kemmler was enraged. He told Tilly that he had noticed that she had packed her trunk to leave whereupon she claimed that she had merely straightened its contents. Kemmler raged that Tilly had plans to run away with DeBella, that she had been deceiving him, and that she had stolen money from him. Finally, Tilly shouted back that it was all true. Whether the admission was indeed true or was brought on by anger and frustration 
was never determined. Kemmler, now quiet, left the house and went to the barn. He returned with a hatchet, with which he struck Tilly repeatedly. When he was finished, he went to a neighbor's house. I killed her, he said. I had to do it. I meant to. I killed her, and I'll take the rope for it. Kemmler's trial was short. On May 10th, he was convicted of first-degree murder. On May 13th, he was sentenced to death, which was to take place within three weeks. William Kemmler was the first man in New York sentenced to death in 1889. Thus, he was to be the first man ever executed using electricity. Almost immediately, a temporary stay of execution was granted, based on an appeal filed by W. Bork Cochran. The new device, Cochran claimed, violated the Eighth Amendment, as it was cruel and unusual punishment. Cochran was a high-priced lawyer, and the fact that he was taking interest in Kemmler, a lowly vegetable peddler, drew some attention. Cochran claimed only to be working in the interest of humanity. In fact, he was hired by George Westinghouse. Westinghouse and his allies had tried desperately to keep Harold Brown from acquiring Westinghouse generators for use in the new apparatus. So diligent was Westinghouse that Brown had to buy used generators, ship them to Brazil, then have them shipped back to America. In his dealings with the press, he was always careful to point out that the generators to be used were made by Westinghouse and that they used deadly alternating current. By hiring Cochrane to step in on Kemmler's behalf, Westinghouse was trying to keep his name and business from a potentially ruinous association with death. Kemmler's stay was granted by Judge Edwin Day, who appointed lawyer Tracy C. Becker to conduct the hearings, which would explore Cochrane's claims. The hearings began on July 9th, and Cochrane was allowed to present his case first. The main thrust of his argument was that electricity was unpredictable. Among his witnesses were men who had taken shocks of huge voltages and lived to tell the tale. Other witnesses had conducted animal experiments in which some subjects lived through the jolts that should have killed them. The key to the argument was resistance, the ability of a substance or thing to impede the flow of electrical current. Resistance, Cochrane claimed, differed greatly from person to person, and there was no reliable way to tell if a man would be killed instantly or would suffer through ever-increasing voltages until he expired. The state's case was argued by Deputy Attorney General William Post. Resistance, the state's witnesses claimed, would become irrelevant at such voltages as would be used in the electric chair. As long as the electrodes maintained good contact with the condemned man's skin, they said, death would be instantaneous and painless. The state's star witness testified on July 23rd. Thomas Edison strongly disagreed with Cochrane's witnesses, calling their arguments nonsense. As long as sufficient voltages were used, the electric chair would work quickly and humanely, he claimed. He was careful to point out that those voltages should be delivered in alternating current and mentioned Westinghouse generators by name. Becker submitted results from the hearings to Judge Day on September 17th. On the same day, both sides presented their closing arguments. On October 9th, Judge Day ruled in favor of the state. Kemmler was to be executed as planned. Cochrane appealed the decision with the State Court of Appeals, which would hear the case on February 25, 1890. Meanwhile, William Kemmler languished at Auburn Prison, and Harold Brown had already conducted preliminary tests on the electric chair he had assembled at three New York prisons. The State Court of Appeals decided quickly. It found no merit to Cochrane's arguments regarding the Eighth Amendment. Kemmler's execution would proceed. 
For a time it seemed as if Kemmler's life was coming quickly to a close. The electric chair at Auburn Prison stood ready. Prison inmates had finished building Kemmler's coffin, and the prison warden had alerted the witnesses who were to be present at the execution. But on May 2nd, Roger Sherman, another attorney hired by Westinghouse, arrived in Buffalo with an order bearing the signature of the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Kemmler's case was to be heard by the highest court in the country. On May 5th, the court granted another stay. They would hear the case on May 21st. Sherman argued again that to execute Kemmler by means of electricity was cruel and unusual punishment and would violate his Eighth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Again, the state argued that electrocution was indeed humane, that much research and consideration had gone into making it so, and that the law was supported by all the governing bodies and courts of New York. On May 23rd, Chief Justice Melville Fuller delivered the court's opinion. Kemmler's appeal was denied. The court found that New York's law did not violate the Constitution and should stand. William Kemmler would be executed at Auburn Prison. Only a few details remained. Kemmler was brought back to Buffalo to be resentenced, as all his previous execution warrants were expired. His execution would now take place between August 3rd and August 6th, 1890. When the call went out for the official witnesses to report to the prison, crowds began to gather outside. Witnesses were to report on August 5th, and among them were Alfred Southwick and George Fell, there to see their idea finally realized. Kemmler was informed that he would be executed at 6 a.m. August 6th. Though he paced and seemed nervous, he did not lose control. Upon waking on the 6th, he dressed hurriedly in a suit that had been chosen for him. He walked resolutely to the death chamber. Asked if he had anything to say, he stated, Well, gentlemen, I wish everyone good luck in this world. And I think I'm going to a good place, and the papers have been saying a lot of stuff that isn't so. The warden's hands shook as he fastened the straps that would secure Kemmler to the chair. Kemmler chided him, My God, warden, can't you keep cool? Take your time. Don't be in a hurry. An electrode, in the form of a metal cap containing a sponge, was attached to his head. Another electrode was attached to his spine, so as to provide a clear path through the body for the current. The electrodes were moistened with a saline solution. In another room, the Westinghouse generator hummed as it increased power. Lamps on its control panel lighted up, indicating that it had reached 2,000 volts, which had been determined through experiments to be the optimal voltage for killing a human being. Edwin Davis then pulled the switch that allowed current to flow to the chair. Electricity coursed through William Kemmler for 17 seconds. He convulsed against the straps and turned bright red. When the current was stopped, Albert Southwick exclaimed, there is the culmination of ten years of work and study. We live in a higher civilization from this day. But there was a problem. Kemmler wasn't dead. Officials hurriedly gave the order to turn the current back on, but some time elapsed, as the generator had been turned off and needed time to gather power again. Meanwhile, Kemmler groaned and struggled for breath. The witnesses were horrified. When the generator again reached 2,000 volts, the current was again switched into the chair. This time, it was kept on for over a minute. Smoke rose from Kemmler's head. There was a smell of burning flesh and a curious crackling sound. When the current was shut off, Kemmler was dead. Media coverage of the event ranged from sober to sensational.
Some newspaper reports claim that flames had shot from Kemmler's mouth. Some of the witnesses were troubled by what they saw and said so to reporters. Though there was a considerable public outcry, it was not enough to move legislators to repeal the electrocution law. Both Harold Brown and Thomas Edison claimed, despite evidence to the contrary, that Kemmler had been killed painlessly within the first second that the current flowed. Edison suggested, however, that future executions should be considered with more powerful generators and a different method of applying the current. The next electrocutions took place in the spring of 1891. Four murderers, each convicted of a different murder, were executed at Sing Sing Prison. James Slocum, Harris Smiler, Shichiok Yugigo, and Joseph Wood were executed in a modified version of the system used at Auburn Prison. The generator was better able to supply steady high-voltage current and thicker wires were used. The second electrodes were placed on the condemned man's calves rather than at their spines. These executions went more smoothly, clearing the way for acceptance of the electric chair as a widely accepted means of carrying out death sentences. Edison had won his battle against Westinghouse for the time being, but would not prevail in the long run. Direct current systems quickly fell out of favor and were replaced by alternating current, which became the national standard. Rather than proving the system superior, Edison's machinations had only served to besmirch his reputation. New York used various electric chairs for roughly 72 years. At that time, 695 people were electrocuted for capital crimes. Other states passed their own laws allowing electrocution to build their own chairs. Several of these laws were pending in bill form even as Kemmler was awaiting the outcome of his appeals. Other states took many years to abandon hanging. Some did not start electrocuting their condemned criminals until the 1950s. Some never adopted the electric chair at all. California, Arizona, and a few others instituted death by cyanide gas as their means of execution. Three states, Delaware, New Hampshire, and Washington, offer the option of hanging to this day. In 1977, Texas began conducting executions using lethal injections of drugs, claiming that this method was more humane than the electric chair. In 1981, Oklahoma did the same. In 1983, several more states made the switch from electrocution to lethal injection. Beginning in 1979, a series of botched electrocutions focused national attention on the electric chair itself. A concern arose that it was both primitive and unreliable. The condemned were suffering needlessly, the argument went. Now that a more humane method was available, why not use it? Legislators took notice, and even more states abandoned their electric chairs for lethal injection. Death by electrocution is concluding a slow exit from its starring role in the drama of 20th century justice. Of the 85 executions that took place in the United States in the year 2000, only five were accomplished using the electric chair. In 1999, three of 98 executions made use of the chair. Only Alabama and Nebraska retained the electric chair as their only available means of execution, though bills currently in the legislatures of both states would allow for the condemned to choose a lethal injection. When these bills pass into law, the nationwide trend towards execution through lethal injection will have swept the electric chair into history, where it will probably take its place beside the guillotine as an historical curiosity.